little less than Jordan. I don't know. Well, you hate him a little less than Jordan? Right now, yeah. Wow, okay. <laughs> I don't know. It's a good thing we're all one in Christ, right? <laughs> okay. All right, so a couple of things. I'm going to need some help. I need uh, somebody to look up and be willing to read Jeremiah 17.9. Can you get Jeremiah 17.9 for me? Thank you, Jeremiah 17. Uh, what's your name? Grant. Grant? Yes, sir. What's my son's name? What's my son's name? I should be able to remember that, right? Grant. Okay. Somebody look up Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Can you do that? Do that. Okay. Okay. Page. 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 So, Grant, your Jeremiah 17, 9, page, your Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, right? And I need somebody to look up 1 Samuel 16, 7. 1 Samuel 16, 7.
I have made some horrible mistakes in my life. I have made career-limiting mistakes in my life. I took five years out of ministry because I had to. And he was there to witness some of it. He got hurt by somebody. He said that to me. I know what it is to fail and hurt people miserably. And I know what it is to be given forgiveness extravagantly. The one is hell on earth. The other is hell on earth. So I'm not coming to you from a place of, I've got it all together, and I've always had it all together. I'm coming to you from a broken place. It's repaired now, but I was broken. And I, it's important for me to get you know that. Okay? We good? Brief history of the world. In the beginning, God created. And everything was awesome. He created this incredible universe and all that is in it. And he kept stopping. He was having such a good time. God kept stopping. Oh, man, that's good. That is so good. But he got to the end of it, and something very special happened. He created something, and he said, that's not just good. That's very good. It was unlike anything else he created. And that thing that was unlike anything else he had created, the thing that he said is very good, was you and me and us. Because we were made in the image of God, in the image and likeness of God. Nothing else in all creation was made like us. We were made in the image and likeness of God, and that means that you and everyone you have ever known and everyone you will never know is invested with inerrant value, dignity, and worth because we are made in the image of God. And at first, in the beginning, we were at peace. We were at peace within ourselves. We, there was no internal conflict. There was no internal confusion. We had no doubts about who we were. We felt no need to pretend to be something that we weren't. We were so at peace with ourselves that the Bible says the man and the, and the woman were naked and felt no shame. Can you imagine no body shame? Just completely at peace with yourself. That's how it was in the beginning. And we were at peace with each other. We didn't, we didn't feel any dominate and control one another. We didn't lie to each other. We didn't, we didn't do any of that. Because we were at peace with each other. We got along perfectly. No argument. And we were at peace with nature. I mean, the earth actually cooperated when we wanted to do something. We wanted to grow something. The earth was like, yeah, let's go. Let's grow. We, we didn't have a carbon footprint. The skies were clear. The water was clean. The earth was unpolluted. We were at peace with, with creation. And we were at peace with God. Now, I don't want to get out of here on a, too far out on a theological land and commit heresy. So let me just ask the question. I wonder, is it possible that Adam and Eve were the only two adult human beings who ever lived who did not need the cross of Jesus to, to, to bridge the gap between them and God because that was not there. Just ask the question. That's the way it was in the beginning. And then the beginning ended. And we believed the lie. Every temptation that you face, that, that any human being has ever faced, every temptation we face, Somewhere, when you peel back all the layers of obfuscation and camouflage, when you peel all that back, somewhere, every temptation is a lie about God. And so we believe the lie about God. And we tried to take God's place. We thought we could be the ones to decide what was right and what was wrong. We thought we could be the ones who could determine what contributed to human flourishing and what didn't. We believed the lie about God, and we broke the peace. We were no longer at peace internally. Now we were confused. In fact, the Bible says we were ashamed, and we tried to cover ourselves. That was the first time we tried to be pretentious. 
and, and we were no longer at peace with each other. Now we try to dominate and control each other. And we were no longer at peace with nature. If you wanted to grow something out of the ground, or if you wanted to bring life out of the womb, it would only come now with toil and sweat and labor, and we were no longer at peace with God. We, that peace was broken. And nobody would have blamed God if he had said, I'm going to go start with one of those uh, marshmallows here. But that's not what he did. God set in motion a plan he had already made. Paul, Ephesians chapter 1, says that before the creation of the world, this was God's plan. Before he even made us, he knew what was going to happen. And so God set this plan into motion. And it involved this really unremarkable couple, Abraham and Sarah. And they were old, older than me. And they were barren. They had no children. They couldn't have any children. And God brought out of them a great nation. And he said, here are my promises. And here are some laws to guide you because you don't know what's right and wrong, but you don't know what contributes to human aversion. And you're going to say, and when you say, here's a system of sacrifice to cover that. And so even though he gave them all of that, and even though he guided them and protected them and conquered nations for them, they still constantly tried to take God's place. And so finally one day God himself came down and lived among us in the person of Jesus. And he showed us what it was like to be a true, genuine, authentic human being. And he died on the cross. And he was buried in the tomb. And three days later he rose from the dead. All this time, we've been trying to take God's place, and he came here and took ours, and he took our sin. And now, if we'll put our faith and hope in him, instead of in ourselves, or instead of some religion, or instead of some theology, or instead of some system, if we'll put our faith and hope in him, God will credit us with the righteousness of Jesus, and he adds us to a family, not a nation state, a family of people from every nation and language and tribe, people every color, people every shape, no matter what the shape of your eyes, no matter what flag you salute, no matter whether you're male or female, no rich or poor, young or old, it doesn't matter. If you're in Jesus, you're a part of the family. And then God gives us his spirit. I don't spit on you yet, because it's going to happen. God gives us his spirit. I've had a shot, it's okay. Gives us his spirit. But enables us to do what we've been trying to do all along. Love God and love them. That's our story. That's the history of the world up until this moment. And it's our story. And if it's true, everything changes. If it's true. And truth, that's kind of hard to figure out sometimes. Start with my childhood. Thanks to nowhere we are in space. It was the biggest history of the world. I grew up in a small town. Anybody grew up in a small town? Hands? Hands? Good? Okay, small town. Every small town has one thing in common, at least, but certainly one thing. Every small town has a character, somebody who's just a little bit different than everybody else, a little bit off. And the truth is, every group of people, every people group has someone who's just a little bit different, okay? It, it can be a church has got somebody a little bit different, uh, a class. And the university has somebody that's just a little bit not like everybody else. Uh, a Christian student group at college has somebody that's just a little bit different. You're probably thinking about that person right now. And if nobody's coming to mind, <laughs> right? So in my town, there was this one guy named Cecil. And Cecil was a portrait artist. He was a fabulous portrait artist. Really?
artists in the room? Any artists? Okay, good, because artists are a little bit crazy, right? They are. Then go. I love you. Here's my ear, right? Okay. So Cecil was, was different. He walked all over town barefooted. Back in those days, it wasn't that big a deal. This is the early 1960s. And he carried his paint easel and canvas under one arm, but in the other hand, he held a cotton string. And at the end of the cotton string was a roller skate. And he pulled that roller skate behind him everywhere he went. And he called the roller skate his little brother. And they communicated. Okay? To Cecil, that was true. Right? My dad owned a furniture store in town. Billy Anglin owned the pharmacy across the street. Dad and Billy played practical jokes on each other all the time. And sometimes they played practical jokes on the whole town. One day, they put a two-way radio in a garbage can outside my dad's furniture store. And they hid behind the sofa in a big display window with the other two-way radio. And when people would walk by, they would greet them by name through the, through the, through the two-way radio. And they, somebody would be like, Dr. Miller, the, the dignified doctor of town would be walking by the garbage can and they'd go, hello there, Dr. Miller. Dr. Miller would startle and they would laugh and laugh. And Mrs. Wages, a dowdy old lady, would be coming home from the grocery carrying her groceries and she'd get into the garbage can and they'd go, Hello, Mrs. Wages, and she would jump, and they would laugh and laugh. Well, here came Cecil. They started laughing before Cecil even got there, because they thought this would be epic. So Cecil's walking along, paying Cecil canvas under water, little brother in tow. Cecil walks by the garbage can. They go, hello there, Cecil. And Cecil goes, hello, garbage can, and just kept right along. Because in Cecil's world, that was truth, right? That was truth. Truth is slippery. It's often hard to figure out. So... Centuries ago, a politician named Pilate asked a prisoner named Jesus that very question. What is truth? And we don't know if Pilate was sincere. He really wanted to know. We don't know if he was like a cynical politician who's just kind of locked into a status quo he doesn't think will ever change. We'll never know that. But I know how a lot of people these days would answer the question, what? Now we're at the part of the journey where I talk about some ways people think about truth. In the first way, a lot of people would answer the question, what is truth? They would say, truth is whatever you want it to be. You have your truth. I have my truth. Right? There's a, such a thing, uh, there's a concept called objective truth. And, and objective truth is this idea that there are some things that are true whether you believe them or not. There are some things that are true regardless of your perspective or where you're from or your age or anything else. These things are, it's, it's, that truth is outside yourself and it's true for everybody all the time, everywhere, regardless of the culture or the era or the time in which they live. It's just true, objective truth. Not everybody believes that. In fact, some of you may not believe that there is such a thing as objective truth. You may be into the idea that you have your truth and I have my truth. I went to a, uh, I, I grew up in the Church of Christ in a very theologically conservative church. I went to a very theologically conservative college, Free Hardin, in West Tennessee. Um, and so when it came time for me, and I wasn't, I was terrible at school. I was awful. I did terrible. I was a bomb, right? I did not let my classes interfere with my college experience. Okay, how's that, right? And so I went. I started preaching for about six and a half years, and then I thought, okay, I need some more training. So I decided to go seminary, and I went to a very liberal seminary, theologically liberal seminary, Presbyterian seminary, and I love those people. 
And I, I went there on purpose because I wanted to see if my very Bible-based believing in the inerrancy and inspiration and infallibility of the Bible would stand up to a very liberal education. I had one professor who was absolutely, I mean, several, but this guy was and is brilliant. He is the, he is a world-renowned Old Testament scholar. I've got like eight of his books on my shelf back in the office. I quote him when I'm studying the Old Testament all the time. The guy is absolutely brilliant. People from all over the world read his stuff. It's been translated in all kinds of languages. I was in his class once, and he said, in, in the midst of a lecture, he said, of course, there is no such thing as objective truth. And I'm sitting in the back, shout out, right? I'm sitting in the back. Because me and another guy, because we're the only two conservative people in the room, theologically conservative people, and theologically conservative means that you believe the Bible, everything, okay? So we're only two. And when when Dr. Brigham had said, there is no such thing as objective truth, I just went, wow. And my buddy goes, hmm. And he started raising his hand. And I went, don't do it. Don't. But he did it anyway, raised his hand. And he said, are you sure? Are you absolutely certain there's no such thing as objective truth? And the professor went, yeah, I'm absolutely sure. Let that run around your head a little bit, because what he just did was make an objective truth claim, right? That's what he just did. He said, no such thing as objective truth. He's an objective truth claim. Next time somebody comes to you and says, you have your truth and I have my truth, ask them, is that true for everybody? I call that fun with logic, okay? Because if it's true for everybody, then you don't have your truth and I have my truth. There's some truth out here. Okay, that's, a, that's one way to think about truth. And that's a, that one's been kind of thrown out. That, that was the baby that was thrown out with the bathwater of patriarchy. Okay, but I still believe in, I don't believe in patriarchy. I do believe in objective truth. All right? Another way to think about truth is authenticity. All right, we, we want to be real, right? We want to be with real people. We want to be genuine. We don't like fakers. America, what, I, I would think right now, if you were to ask anybody on the street, are you, do you dig authenticity? Is that your jam? Everybody would go, even if they're like, whatever, they're the worst people in the world. They go, I love, we want authenticity. It's America's gold standard. We want it. Anybody want to guess how much money we spent on cosmetic surgery in 2019? Just take a shot. Anybody? Come on, so say, say a number. 16 billion, 16.9 billion dollars in 2019 on cosmetic surgery. You are so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of money. If it's not authentic, right? Okay, I'm gonna, don't raise your hands. How many of you bought distress jeans? Don't raise your hand. You know what distress jeans are? Fake. They're fake. I've got hand straight hardwood floors in my house. They were hand straight by a machine. They look like they're real, but they're not. They're fake. America loves authenticity, and we're terrible at it. We go on our social media, and I'm not going to rail on social media a lot, but I just want to say this. We like things that other people like, not because we like them, but so we like We love authenticity, but we're not there yet. Okay, then the other way to think about it is truth. Just telling the truth. The other way to think about truth is just plain old, the words that I speak are consistent with reality. That's when your mother says, did you throw the rock through the window or was it your brother? Right? And you go with my brother and she knows me. It was you, that was a lie. We want to be truth tellers. Now we 
Now, the feel-like that's going the way that I just searched too, because we don't trust our politicians to tell the truth. We don't trust our news media to tell the truth. We don't bother to trust each other to tell the truth. And the truth is, if we could somehow do a play-by-play -play of your life in the last week, would you have told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in every circumstance? I can't say that I do. So, truth in whatever way we think about it feels like it's slipping away. Okay. Since we could spend, you know, a whole retreat on any one of those things, and since authenticity is your theme, and since it's kind of the thing everybody in the country wants, let's drill down on some authenticity here. Um, there's a great theologian named Inigo Montoya. Okay. I'm going to borrow his phrase. Authenticity. We keep using that word. I do not think it means what we think it means. I'm going to give you three things that I think we get wrong about authenticity. If you're keeping up with where we are in the journey, we're on the last leg. It's hot, it's late, and you want to play Jenga. I got it. Okay? All right? Let's wrap this up. Number one, we get authenticity wrong because we think it's a good thing. We think authenticity is a good thing. It's not. Authenticity is not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Authenticity is morally neutral. It is morally neutral. See, here's the thing. You can be a genuinely authentic person and be awful. Be an awful human being. Not care what other people think. Don't care about other people's suffering. Keep all your stuff for yourself. Be greedy. Be mean. Be violent. And be upfront and out loud about all of that. Be completely authentic about it. And so basically what your authenticity is doing is channeling all your evil. Hitler was probably authentic. Right? Ted Bundy. You know who Ted Bundy was? You know who that was? Serial killer? There's a lady in my church who was in a dorm at Florida State University in the room next to the room of the woman Ted Bundy killed. She was, the, she was in my office. Lynn Box, you remember Lynn? Mm -hmm. Okay, talks a lot, like a lot. Expressing how I feel, and I'm angry right now, I'm letting that out, and I'm sad right now, I'm letting that out, whatever. 
completely consistent with my feelings, then I'm being authentic. Here's the problem with that. Your feelings are a, they are a terrible guide. Your feelings are good gauges, but they're not a good guide. If you're taking notes, you're going to write that down. Your feelings are excellent gauges. They are terrible guides. Did you know that Scripture, Jesus, God never tells us to be yourself? tells us to deny yourself. And there are all kind of feelings that we have that we don't follow up on precisely because we know they're not good for us or good for other people. Okay, I'm, I'm 62 years old, and I'm, my wife says, who's, who's younger in mind and heart than I am, um, she's about, she's a year younger, but she's, she thinks younger than I do, and she says that I'm embracing the get-off-my-lawn stage of life, really, and I am, I'm really digging it. Right, so some real advantages to be an old. Okay, just enjoy this, but it gets better. It gets way better. Trust me. So there are a couple of things that really drive me up a wall right now. And if this is if one of these hits you, not sorry. Okay, people that drive really loud trucks, like loud pipes on trucks, drives me up a wall. Okay, and I mean, I, what I want to do is drag somebody out of one of those things and beat them with a hammer. That's what I want to do. <laughs> I feel like doing it. I haven't done that. I felt like it, but I haven't followed through. Because if I did that, I wouldn't be here right now. Okay? I'd be in the uh, Owens Crossroads, Alabama jail. The other thing that really, and this burns my toast, this really gets me. If I'm in line, if I'm in, if I'm in the line at the grocery store and the ten items are less, I'm, I'm, I'm getting. Your, you know, your brain doesn't know the difference between a memory and the real thing. You realize that that when you remember something, your your brain says it's happening again. Okay, I mean, I'm having that moment right now. I was standing in line in the in the ten items are less lane, and I had three items: three, one, two, three, three, seven less than ten. There's a guy in front of me. He had a, a whole grocery cart. I, I mean, a whole cart of things. <laughs> I wanted to punch him in the back of the head. And I wanted to say, was you idiot? Did you fail third grade math? Ten. Fifty. It's not the same. That's not what I did. That's what I felt like doing, but I denied myself. And I just I just stood there and I, I breathed really deeply and I quoted scripture to myself <laughs> so that I wouldn't go to hell, right? Because I wanted to feel it. Your feelings? Read Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17, 9. You should memorize this verse. Do it. The heart is deceitful above all things. What? The heart is deceitful above all things. One more time. The heart is deceitful above all things. Go ahead. And desperately wicked, who can know it? Your heart is deceitful. Your heart will lie to you. It will not tell you the truth. So, if you try to live out of your emotions, you're going to have a bad time. Your emotions are excellent gauges. They tell you what you value. They do not tell you what you should value. Okay? Now, emotions are not bad. God, gets, God has emotions. God gets angry. God laughs. God gets jealous. Jesus got angry. Jesus was a man of sorrows and grief. Jesus experienced joy. 
I think being made in the image of God, a part of that, is our emotions. But your emotions are not good guys. Okay, so authenticity cannot be living consistently with your emotions. I want to make sure I'm not thinking anything else. I'm not. Okay, one more. Authenticity is not, it's what our culture thinks right here. Our culture thinks this. Maybe you think it too. I don't want you to think this. Our culture thinks that authenticity and brokenness are the same thing. They think authenticity and brokenness are the same thing. Because what we do is we hear somebody that has, a, has this story about, about, about brokenness and they're so authentic. Because he came clean about his drug addiction. He came clean about his adultery. We love those stories. And it's okay to love those stories. But are you less authentic if you never got addicted to drugs? Are you less authentic if you never committed adultery? Are you less authentic if you never cheated on a test? We've got this, we're doing this new thing at, at uh, our church. is called Twickenham Church of Christ. Twickenham, it's a weird long name. It's hard to get into it. Let's weave some help with that. It's crazy. So, you, you know, do you know that I have ADD? You figured that out yet? Okay, so. Um, Next year, we're going to do this thing called Pull Up a Chair. It's our third year, and we're trying to get our church to be more open to everybody, more open. And so this idea of pull up a chair and tell us your story. And so we're lining people up to tell their stories. And in our meeting about that, we're all going, okay, we need people that, are, that have been had drugs, and we need people that have committed adultery, and we need people that lost their children, and people that are raising Down syndrome children, and people that have been adopted, and all these other things. And we go, wait, 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 wait a minute. Somebody said, what if you don't have a story? And I went, well, Everybody's got a story. Maybe your story is that you didn't get addicted to drugs because you picked the right kind of friends or, or your parents raised you in a certain way or whatever. Maybe you didn't have these terrible experiences. That's your story, and that's a good story. See, our culture equates authenticity with brokenness. A couple of months ago, I think it was maybe six months ago, uh, one of our admins called my office, Adrian called my office, and said, there's a call on one you need to text. So I pick it up. Hello? And this guy on the other end, he goes, Pastor, I'm homeless. I'm a drug addict. It, it was like 30 degrees that day. I, I, it's cold, and I want help. And my first question was, are you high? And he said, I'll be honest. I used this morning. And I went, well, thank you for being honest. Tell me, what, tell me your story. So he starts talking to me. And it, it seems like you really want help. So I got a couple of guys who went and picked him up. We called uh, uh, the addiction recovery program in Huntsville, his way, and um, his name of the program. And they said, yeah, we've got a place for him. We secured financing because it's expensive to put somebody in a six-month program where they're housed and fed and clothed and treated. We secured financing for him. We did all this in like an hour. And then we said, okay, here's the deal. We're going to put you in a hotel tonight because it's cold and get down to the 20s. We'll come and pick you up in the morning, and we'll take you to his way, and we'll get you on the road to recovery. And he was like, yes. Put him in the hotel. Went back to pick him up that morning, and he was gone. He called his grandfather. He said, Granddaddy, I'm going into a program. I need 100 bucks. And his granddaddy brought him 100 bucks. And 10 minutes after his grandfather left, he called me again. And got out again. And I have not heard from him since. Authentic? No. Was he broken? Yes. Brokenness 
ethnicities other than United Arab Nations. So you have your beliefs. There are a lot of things you don't do if you feel like doing because your emotions are large. There are a lot of things you do that you don't feel like doing because you know they're good for you because you're living out of your beliefs. I believe it's good for me to do this thing. And so I do. Okay, Ephesians. Who's got the Ephesians passage? Read that before me, please. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Just as the Lord of Israel is my son, my firstborn, so I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, you shall be beat out of your son, your firstborn. Okay, I, I told you the wrong one. I'm so sorry. It's totally my fault. Okay, Here, here's, what, here's one that I should have told you. You were taught with regard to your former way of life. Is that what you're right? I got, I got it right here. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your mind. Our culture wants to celebrate the brokenness. God says, okay, I want you, I want you broken, but then I want you to take that next step. I want you to get the old. I want you to put on, put off the old, put on the new. Put off the old, put on the new. Okay, let's wrap this up. One more thing. Who's got for Samuel 16 7? Read it. Well, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, the Lord sees the heart. The Lord sees the heart. That was my favorite verse when I was a kid. Because I was short, and I had acne, and I was not an athlete, and I was chubby. And I kept going, The Lord does not see what people see. People look on the outside, the Lord looks on the heart. It was my favorite verse. You can fool people. You can. You can make them think that you're a great Christian. You can make them think that whatever. You really can do that. God sees the heart. So nobody else knows what's going on with you. God sees the heart. Now, here's the, here's, we can go two directions with that. God sees your heart, and oh boy, is he mad, and are you going to go to hell? Okay? That's one way we can go with it. The other way we can go with that is God sees your heart. He knows exactly what you're thinking. He knows exactly who you are. And he loves you anyway. I had a really hard day. My dad was a hard man. And when I made the biggest mistake of my life, I had to go home and tell my mother and father, I was 40, no, 50, I was 50 years old. Maybe, I don't know, late, late, late 40s, early 50s. I had to go tell my mom and dad what I had done. When I told them, I broke down and cried. And my dad, who was the hard, one of the hardest men I've ever met, embraced me and said, I love you. It'll be okay. If my dad, Love me after I told him what I had done. Your God, who can see your heart, loves you. And I want you to know that. See, here's God's thing. He is not surprised. He is not intimidated. He is not overwhelmed by whatever's in your heart. He's not, he's not surprised by it. He knows you. And he loves you. 
and he wants to take you back to the way it was in the beginning when you were at peace with yourself and at peace with other people and at peace with creation and at peace with God. You may want to do that. That's how much you love him. He didn't come after you since before the creation of the world. If you haven't read it yet, for tomorrow, read Acts chapter 5. A hard story. A hard story. We'll talk about apostleship. Let's say for Holy God, thank you for every one of these guys in this room. Thank you for their hearts. Thank you for their, well, they listen really well. Todd is late and they listen so well. And so, God, I pray that somewhere in all of this jumble that was my thoughts tonight, that you will find a piece of truth and take it into their hearts and let that begin to change them. In whatever ways they're broken, begin to heal. In whatever ways they're not at peace, bring, bring peace. Help this group grow much closer together to this weekend. Closer to each other. Hey, you did this in my thinking.